Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, which is powered by Anastasio Law. Our law offices are located at 2016 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. The history of Philadelphia, like the history of any great city, is written in stone for anyone to read. Hi folks, this is Vern Anastasio, and welcome to Philly Built. You know, one of the pillars of Philadelphia's economy is the city's hospitality industry. Specifically, its restaurants. Today, we examine the tragedies, the thrills, and the theater of the city's restaurant industry with one of its hottest young restaurateurs, Chris Fetfatsis the owner of the new blockbuster Eurobar, Grace and Proper, of the Hawthorne Restaurant Group. We talk about the rise and fall of streeteries, gentrification, and his most unusual take on the pandemic that shut the industry down. Chris Fatsis of the Hawthorne Restaurant Group, welcome to Philly Built. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you considering me for this podcast. Thanks. Well, thanks for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, speaking of being busy, uh, name name the places and the locations uh, of the food and beverage destinations you currently offer. Sure thing. Us here in Philadelphia. Uh, the first uh, the first restaurant we started was 2009. It's called Hawthorne's Cafe. Um, it's in the Hawthorne section of Philadelphia. It's uh, 11th and Fitzwater, a couple of short blocks away from the Italian market. Uh, from there, we opened up a spot called Cambridge, um, involved that to what is now Sonny's Cocktail Joint and expanded there to Wine Dive, which is at 15th and South, 1508 South. Next was Tio Flores, a nice Mexican taqueria, 16th and South is what is located. Um, between between that, we opened up a uh, on-demand wine delivery business called Quick Sip. You can get wine and champagne delivered to your door in greater Philadelphia from river to river, from University City all the way to the stadiums. Within 40 minutes, wines you can't find in the state stores. Most wines you'll find in Oyster House and Tria and really some cool select spots that are small and niche, uh, niche importers. And then most recently, we just opened up something per, uh, dear, dear and near to me. It was called Grace and Proper. It is called Grace and Proper. It's at 8th and Carpenter, uh, one block off of the Italian market. Um and uh, we opened that in November. You know, growing up, I've always heard that you know, especially young men when they're when they're making their bones in the world, in New York City, uh, they ask you what you do for a living. In Boston, they ask you what you where did you go to school, uh, but in Philly, they ask you who your parents were. I believe your parents had a profound impact on what you decided your journey would be here, uh, and how you did it. So tell us who your parents are. Did your dad start out with hot dog carts in Philly? They gravitated towards the hospitality industry, and they had hot dog carts. Back then, they're called push carts, and some of them are still called push carts, and they literally were push carts. They were standing outside in the cold. You had two rubber white handles on the side. You just had a steam table, and you had a little cabinet in front of you, and that was it. And then you had an umbrella stand. Almost what what outdoor water ice stands look like now is what, that, what the hot dog carts looked back then. So uh, from there, at the time... Um, it was kind of like a stake your own kind of corner at the time. There was not any of that much regulation. So pretty savvy people, smart people. They went to where the people were. They went to the historic sites in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. They went to the Liberty Bell. They went to the Betsy Ross house. They had blue chip 
properties for their hot dog carts. No education. My dad left Greece when he was 14, my mom, and um, they are the American dream. They are the American story. Um, and it just happens to be in the 20th century as opposed to the 19th century. Um, and it's, and it's, it's uh, the origin story for the Hawthorne restaurant. It's the origin story, yeah. Right. It's the origin story, exactly. And when it came to Philadelphia, you know, they, um, they lived in, in, in poor neighborhoods. They, 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 they had to, you know, they, they worked their way up and they came from very poor means. We grew up very poor in Greece when there was like, you know, dirt floors and, and, and you know, self-flushing toilets and you're living off the land. Um, so their, their, their voyage to the United States is no different. So where they bought uh, a garage was at 11th and Fitzwater. And it was, uh, in a very African and heavy, African-American heavy neighborhood where the Martin Luther King projects just went up and it was what they could afford. So at 11th and Fitzwater, that's where they store their hot dog carts. Um, that's where they lived above. Um, and that was their, that was their universe. Um, and, uh, and that's today where Hawthorne's Cafe sits. That's right, right at eleven. That's exactly where, where Hawthorne Cafe sits. The uh, Hawthorne neighborhood, as you uh, alluded to, was very long neglected, very under resourced community with lots of disinvestment uh, from the city for a very long time. How did how did you manage uh, when you opened Hawthorne's Cafe? Uh, how did you manage the balance of bringing something? like a new and different restaurant to the community without becoming labeled the gentrifier, you know? Um, um, that's not what, I mean, you weren't labeled the gentrifier. There wasn't that push and pull, at least from uh, the outside looking in. How were you able to manage that? Um, I managed it through honesty, honestly. I managed it through respecting humans and understanding um how to complement an area as opposed to just take and see as an opportunity. I manage by growing up in that neighborhood. I manage by having a, uh, a respect with African-Americans as a child. My parents were not prejudiced people whatsoever. We respected humans as they all were the same. So having the familiarity as being, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old, selling them lottery tickets, helping them put cases of beer in their truck, bullshitting with them and just being an honest, real person and seeing them, seeing have them having them see me sweep the streets every day you know i just felt this karmatic approach that if i am the best sweeper in the world that day somehow some way it'll come back to me in this world and that was instituted by my mom about whatever you do you must do it with excellence so i think having people see that we were also immigrants also working hard also respecting and not of the old fabric, if you will, of the of, of, of from where we were staring across the street from Hawthorne's, that there was a uh, an, um, an acceptance. In 2014, Chris, uh, Hawthorne's, the building in which Hawthorne sat, Hawthorne's Cafe, sat caught fire in an apartment upstairs, and it caused significant damage uh, to your your baby, your first restaurant. You know. Yeah. Um, it was closed for a long time. You could explain to us how, how long. Uh, how did you, I mean, you, this was your primary source of, of life. Yeah. How did you bounce back from something so devastating, literally rising from the ashes? Um, I think we, <clears throat> I think this is where my 
surroundings, my education, and just kind of an innate nature I have that rounds out what my parents deposited in me uh, allowed us to survive is that we always grow by defense, right? So that's our, that's our, that's our, that's our model as our restaurant group. So we had a second restaurant Cambridge, which we opened up shortly thereafter. And because we had that income that allowed us to, uh, continue the fight. Um, but however, all that income, all that income, uh, was gone because we, um, we gave it all to our staff. So we had 30, 30 staff members when we were, when we had Hawthorne's, and regardless of the fire, we made it apparent to take care of these employees. Uh, it wasn't their fault we had a fire. Our insurance company wasn't taking care of them. But we knew that, again, doing the right thing somehow, some way, karma will pay you back, right? So um, 27 of 30 members came back uh, to work for us. I wow. knew we needed these members. And that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big percentage, uh, yes. obviously and honestly. And... Um, we knew the strategy was we knew when we when we we when we reopened is that we would the floodgates would open and we knew that we had to sprint not we couldn't crawl we've already been established there's always this high expectations and this high level of excellence of what people have come to know had we gone through the early growing stages again and growing growing pains people would not be forgiving people you, are just have short sightedness you mean again, new staff members training you know taking the time to train new people and all all of that yes exactly right so you know it's uh having a restaurant is like having a child. It, it, it changes over time and there's an evolution and all that stuff. So it's not just all of a sudden a well-groomed 18 year old human. Like there's, there's the growing pains that you must go through. So we bounced back because of doing right. We bounced back because we knew we had to take care of our staff members. We, we bounced back because of this belief of karma. Um, but we were able to posture ourselves because we had a second restaurant. And I mentioned we grow with, we, we, we grow with defense um, so that allowed us to, um, that allow us to bounce back for sure. Um, and you know, I know it might've felt like a long time, but the fact that this building had just four structural walls, you could walk in and see the stars from the front door. We were closed. We built that building and opened a restaurant in 11 months with zoning and building. Wow. It so was that pretty, was pretty fast. It, yeah. And I we, mean, it was devastated. The building was was it was shot. ravaged. Yeah. And honestly, we could have opened and built that restaurant, I would say, in, in eight months. Um, and that hard work is what allows us to break, come back. That hard work is what my parents have instilled of being immigrants and just working like an immigrant. It's, it's an expression, but it is true. Yeah. It's defending and fighting and busting balls and, and shaking trees. And you can move mountains if you have conviction. And if you, have, and you can move mountains if you have uh, um, logic and, if you pre and you're prepared. Well, uh, it's obvious you have a supercharged worth ethic, and that gets me to this whole idea of uh, the grind culture in the restaurant industry. You know, for so long, restaurant tours, uh, notoriously, uh, you know, you hear the stories about pushing themselves and pushing their staff and pushing their crew uh, in this grind culture that is a constant grind to a point where it could actually be toxic. Uh but you took pains to keep 27 of 30 folks uh, when your whole building went up in flames. Uh, talk and, and we talk about the grind culture a lot more now post-COVID. Uh, talk about the grind culture uh, and how you handle that, or do you reject it out of turn? Restaurant people who, who run restaurants know that it's a marathon, know that we're going to get... Uh 
go through the ringer. And a restaurant is where you are stimulated in every aspect of business. You're stimulated with regards to production. You're stimulated with regards to human resources, marketing, um, accounting. So I, I don't know of many other professions that can give you all of those at the same time. Um, so, you know, there is this grind culture because um, it's demanding. It's a blue collar job. It's perceived as this white collar job, but you know, you're in there with your hands. You're using your hands. You're you're in there surviving. The margins are very thin, and 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 you must lead by example. So the grind culture is showing your work ethic so people can get behind you. Grind culture is showing up every day so you can touch tables so you can develop a customer base. Grind culture is that competition that you know you are setting yourselves up with because you are on a stage. You are judged essentially by the success of your restaurant. Most other professions don't have that arena where people can be stared at, judged at, critiqued at. So the atmosphere of owning a restaurant and the stage and the natural innate to survive is what is the by, grind culture is the byproduct of all those things. So the goal is to establish it. The goal is to turn your image of a blue collar job to a white collar job, right? Where you have this esteem, you are granted this respect. Um, and where you're not grinding, but under all that facade, you are, your mind is spinning of, you know, you have to do the schedule and, and who's going to show up. And now you have to have a, ma uh, a meeting with Manny because we're busy all of a sudden now he wants more money. So it's like, it's a, it's a constant toil of, of, of all things, um, human, frankly. But somehow, unlike a lot of other restaurateurs, um, you've been able to, I think, avoid the toxicity that this grind culture can produce uh, just by the very nature that 27 out of 30 staff members stuck by you during the fire uh, uh, of 2014 and after and most recently at your newest establishment grace and proper in bella vista on the corner of eighth and carpenter for those who are interested uh it comes across when you go there the, the staff love each seem to love each other are genuinely happy people uh and have a real commitment and dedication to the place itself yeah so if it's if your grind culture at hawthorne's restaurant group is toxic they sure do a hell of a great job not showing it because something's something's different there yeah especially at grace and proper talk to us about that place I think the successful restaurateurs have that something different. And what that different is, is an ability to understand humans. I think that is uh, our gift is that we are relatable humans and we get it and we see bullshit from a mile away. So understanding that environment, we want to be honest with our staff. We want to let them know that this is we are only as good as you. And we mean that. It's cliche. People say that. But when we're there, when we're on our hands and knees, getting the place open and scrubbing and busting balls and making sure that we feed them with care and we pay them well and we give ourselves up that begets real like reality right like people want care humans want care so you know at in the same turn we're able to keep our our culture where we are because we show care but we have high standards right and we uh, we explain and have to understand that they are parallel. You must have, you can't be kumbaya and not business savvy because 
you're going to close. You can't be all business savvy now, Kumbaya, because you're going to have robotic humans that don't instill hospitality, right? We let them know that hospitality is a measure of care. This is our message at our restaurant groups. People don't have to come to our restaurants. There's so many other restaurants, and we are only as good as our last plate. But, you know, my mom would always say, you got to make it with love. And I would always say to the guys that said, con amor, you know, like, and it's true. You know, it's, if you give a shit about your work and your boss gives a shit about you and you take care of guests, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good recipe for success. Let's talk about COVID. You know, here you go. Six years after, five years after reopening Hawthorne's, uh, after the fire, boom, international global pandemic and mandatory shutdown of everything you have. Um, what, well, I mean, I know what, what it was like as, you know, a non-restaurant tour. How did that hit you? It hit me. Um, I think life prepares you for other life expectancies. So the fire prepared us for what it felt like to get knocked out overnight cold by getting sucker punched. So we felt that shock and awe of survival. Um, we just opened up a wine dive, massive success in January. This little store was probably our best store we opened up kicking ass. And it was amazing to see that you can do so much with so little, which no, 1500 that not, and that's 1500 block of South street. Correct. Right? Yeah. So that knowledge of what a little store could produce is frankly what got grace and proper too. So again, life teaching me lessons along the way. Um, so how do I felt? I felt, uh, I felt, um, a little bit of, a little bit of relief, honesty, because like you mentioned this toxicity, right? So a little bit of relief that we can, shut it down. And as everyone has to shut it down for a moment of just like, let's just take a pause. Right. So most restaurateurs won't probably admit to that, but I'm sure they enjoyed the break that they had. I'm sure that the, uh, the, these loans, uh, gave them a nice cush life. And, um, I think it brought a lot of relief to restaurant people at the same time, things crept in. You're like, Holy shit. There's this race beginning again where there's this restaurant popping up and that restaurant popping up. And then there's like a level of like, holy shit, we have to scavenger for food. We have to make sure that we're like, still like we have to go out there, peek our head out of this bunker and like, let's see what's out there. Right. So there's that remain, re remain to be relevant. That was the, that was the left. That was the chapter of that moment is remaining relevant. Yes. You may, you must remain relevant. And then as that evolves, getting things under control, your ship is getting massively attacked by these giant cannonballs and you're taking on water and you're not knowing what's going to happen, but you're on the water with some crew members who are dedicated. Not everyone came back, but the ones who are dedicated, who truly believe these restaurants are part of themselves came back because of themselves, not because of me, but because of themselves. And we foster that environment. The coffee shop pivot, which is aptly, aptly named, I think, uh, came out of COVID, right? Sure. Uh, what, what, you know, you well, haven't been in the coffee business before. What what moved you to do that? Um, well, you know, it's it's you are a conductor, at least in a leadership wartime general, where you have to understand the environment and the waves ahead of you and the winds and so forth. So the city was coming down with a mandate that dining was done, six feet or nothing. See you later. We're, you know, we're going to just take a little pause. So what has always remained consistent with COVID is the outside dining. So we knew we had still this compassion of guests who want to keep restaurants open. We knew some assets what we had as a restaurant that were known as brunch and we can get away with like a stretch being a coffee shop and doing some baked goods because people can make that leap themselves. At the same time, COVID, I, I embraced COVID where anything really went, meaning 
if you wanted to be a fine dining restaurant also and you want to do pancakes to survive, like, fuck it, who cares? Like, that's what people did. So I, I enjoy my, 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 my job because I feel that it's theater. I enjoy the stage of it. I enjoy the stimulation of our guests. So I like the fact that we could just turn something into something within a month and we can mobilize our staff and reconceptualize things pretty quickly. And I viewed ourselves as Hawthorne's production company during COVID, honestly. We were just producing things and, and, and making it making it work. So pivot, aptly named, we had to pivot because of what was in front of us with the uh, with the city and such. And it sticks. It's a good name. It's a two syllable name. It, it checks all the boxes of marketing. Blah blah blah. Um, and so yeah, so we opened in the winter uh, as a coffee shop, six o'clock in the morning. We and pivot coffee shop and supery, right? Who can't wrap their hands around a, a warm uh, piece of nourishment or a cup of coffee when you still can't leave your house, but you can to eat? So this was, again, understanding our waves in front of us and, and giving people what they want because it's theater. You know, they're supporting a restaurant the holidays. Like we had a responsibility to give people hope. So giving people that hope, giving our employees that hope, surviving is what was the fuel to pivot. And... Um, survive we did. It was, I needed my guests to see that this place was not boarded up. I needed my employees to come around for the spring because we value what is important of what the human element is to a restaurant. So a ton of things. And, uh, right. not just touch, not just touch screens, which a lot of people went to, uh, and, re and replaced, um, there was navigating. Human. Yeah. You know, yeah. there was moments where you have to change gears, press the brakes, put gas on. You have to understand that humans might not want paper. They either understand that they, they just want to scan. And, and I think COVID did nothing except speed everything up. I think we just hit one big giant fast forward button during that period of time. Um, and, and that's the byproduct I think of what COVID is and where we are right now in society. Tell us about how that, how that policy uh, out of, really uh, the mind of Alan Dom, uh, the streeteries came came to be and how it how it made a difference. Um, it made a difference because um, it gave a lifeline. It was just a lifeline. It was it was still investments that had to be made. It was still hard work that we're, we own restaurants. We're, we're not craftsmen. You know, most some of our restaurateurs, they're pretty handy with their hands. But it was it was a lifeline of rope. And what we did with that rope was dependent on ourselves. So yes, the lifeline was there. And again, restaurant people are of a different breed. There is a, there's a cavalierness to, I think us restaurateurs because we don't want to play it safe because we don't want to have a nine to five. Like we understand that. So they, whether, whether the city allowed it or not, the cavalierness and the, and the, and the, and, and the need to survive, those things were coming up one way or another. Does he own restaurants? Sure. Yes. But, but um, he's a real estate guy. He's a city guy. So I think he was defending the city, frankly. Um, yeah. and the shooteries were a lifeline. Thank God they were there. And, uh, you know, the, again, the outside was the only thing that remained consistent during COVID. You know, people are starting to come back to the city, uh, from the suburbs, from my gathering. They're coming back to the city simply for the restaurants and only for the restaurants. I would always defend this to Schroeders and say, hey, listen, if this is a scar left over from COVID, what a beautiful scar, right? This is a young country re uh, relative to our to our European counterparts. We're about, you know, 275 years old, where our other counterparts overseas are thousands of years old. They've been through pandemics. They've been through endemics. 
and their outdoor dining is probably probably a reaction to that at some point. So they've they've established that they can do that outdoors. I think because they've they're older as a country. I think us uh, we have to embrace that and just this is our second pandemic, um, and I'm sure things changed in from 1905 to to 2023. So yeah, there's an understanding amongst business owners. There's an understanding amongst. Uh, citizens that streeteries overall are a good thing. The current uh, situation with streeteries is if you're in actual the proper, you know, center city proper, which is Bainbridge Street North or South Street North, uh, you can you can have a streetery as a matter of right. But if you aren't, if you happen to be in greater center city, like Hawthorne or Bella Vista or uh, up in uh, Fishtown, you've got to go through one hell of a process. Yeah, the process is, uh, I think I think they took the easy way out. I think they followed suit to what is the, the, the sidewalk seating um, process where they seem that there's different regions and different vibes of the city, which there are. Um, but um, yeah, I think they followed the suit of that where um, you need an ordinance and you need all that stuff. But um you know what was a, what was a known fact is that during COVID, people stayed in their neighborhoods. They stayed in their most immediate neighborhoods for safety, and there was a back to um, back to the, their neighborhoods as opposed to just going downtown. Downtown was having this massive volume flow, and that just dried up and sucked up. So that it it was these streeteries were born in the neighborhoods, um, and um, they're 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 mostly needed in these neighborhoods because we don't have the luxury of the foot traffic. So we need to compete on a different means. Um, we need to use that as a billboard. We need to let people know that, hey, you know, you, we are here. This is, we, this is something. I think there's, more, even, there's even more space in the neighborhoods than there are downtown. Um, so on a logistical point, with those points I just made, as city planning, one innately would think we have to go where there's more square footage for these things to actually coexist here. Um, so they just, uh, but instead they, uh, they just, they, 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 again, they didn't want to think about it. And they just, again, followed the sidewalk seating, I think, regulations so they could just process it and move on and begrudgingly do yeah. something. Is it's my, a lazy, is, is my a thing. lazy approach, I would think. It's a lazy approach, but boy, oh boy, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, understood and the air of the opinion of the city's position of streeteries to its citizens is that they don't want them. They've made that clear and citizens know that. Um, so there's like this black eye, essentially, that's that's given by our government um, of what these things are. Um, so it's difficult to beat the government and it's difficult to counter uh, someone when they have you know the, the mic in their hand. Um, versus someone who is deemed this uh, restaurant eccentric person who's just trying to be a money, uh, just just money hungry, right. and that's just not the case. That's just not the case whatsoever. Your postcard to Europe, specifically to Portugal, uh, sits at Grace and Proper. It's a very special place of all your places, I must say, and not just because it's you know down the block from my house, but it's a very special place. Uh, it's a different place uh, talk about what that with grace and proper means to you so grace and proper will be no different than any of our restaurants with it being different however the the knowledge of a responsibility i had was more greater 
to me. I knew that I had a lot of um, eyes on what we were doing there. I knew that we have this fourth album or fifth album coming out, and they've all been stellar hits, so the expectations of it being diff no different were also there. We've owned this property for 10 years, and for circumstances out of our control, we just haven't been able to get to it. Hawthorne's had its fire, COVID hit, et cetera, so this should have been our second restaurant. However, we were delayed. I mentioned life teaches you lessons along the way. Life continued to teach me lessons about this way. And the last bit of COVID was very important. It's what got my mom ill and it, it, and it was because, and, and that's what led to her untimely death. That, however, led me to more of a responsibility that I wanted to let people know about my mom. I wanted to let people know about my heritage more so. I think that people coming out of COVID continued to want, they wanted to go back to hospitality. They were done with QR codes. They were done with like just lackluster service. They were done with plastic cups and we were done too. So we were going to, we, we have this building. It's this charming building. I love the nostalgia of where I grow up. I love the nostalgia of my parents. I love the past. And this building is a great example of all that. These restaurants are my personalities. And this is a personality that shows elegance that shows care that shows compassionate servers like this place is a special place i knew it it is it is it's going to sound crazy but it's like it's like a cathedral if you will right it has a level of responsibility that ties in the old south philly neighborhood tying it to my roots growing to go into st paul's and being south philly frankly claiming and staking my 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 position in the neighborhood as being part of the fabric of this community doing it better than anyone and saying, fuck you all at the same time. <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Because I knew there was a lot, like, again, I, I need fuel, right? I, Kobe Bryant needs haters to fuel him, mm -hmm. right? Like there is like, there is that fuel. And sometimes when you go and open a restaurant, you have to dig deep to motivate you to get baptized by fire. Opening a restaurant is baptismal by fire. You need something to, to just turn it on. So yeah, so Grayson Proper is different. It feels different. The air is different, um, and it's 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 a responsibility that I take seriously. I love it. It was a child out of COVID. It was a child out of the death of my mom. Seeing what's happening with the industry, seeing that we had to get efficient, seeing that we needed to squeeze as much lemonade out of out of out of, out of a space that we could, we did things differently. We wanted to cook upstairs. We wanted to make menus a little bit simpler, but offer as much as we can with very little equipment. You know, we wanted to challenge ourselves to truly think differently, and we and we had a responsibility. We, uh, Portugal is very hot at the moment. It's the Iceland of what was pre-COVID, right? So there's that. There's the attention. Uh, there's my bloodline. There's the air that it seems like Europe, and and people are they want you know they're in every social media evolves it because people want more, more, more different shit. Grace and Proper is different, right? We're doing fun, great Portuguese cocktails with ingredients and liquors that no one's have used before. We're putting food out that no one has eaten before in an atmosphere like that. Yes, there are other Portuguese restaurants, but something that's so accessible hasn't been really there. Um, so we had to create and jam all of these emotions, all of these life lessons into a 600-square-foot space and, and hit it out of the park. Um, but we followed the same model as we did with Hawthorne's. We were transparent with our neighbors. We told them our vision. We let them meet us ahead of time. We defended our actions. We took the lumps at these meetings, but we made sure that our message was heard and it was with care. And I think the fact that I back it up, the restaurants back it up, we do what we say, and we knew and we, and we, and we tried to really ex show that this restaurant is special. Um, 
I think that was the thought process of Grace and Proper. It was the culmination of my career, uh, frankly. Um, it has a pantina of old beauty uh, and uh, a certain amount of understated elegance. Um, and you sit down and you have a cocktail that you probably never had before uh, and, a, and a mortadella sandwich that blows your mind. It's... it's uh, brilliant in its simplicity. It's it's unlike any other place I've been, uh, and I am not the only person who says that. We do feel the same way. We feel it is special. We feel it has some of that same Hawthorne's love and air that we were able to capture at our opening to now. And um, yeah, I I I understand the responsibility of of giving people hospitality, caring, loving, different hospitality. Um, we wanted to make it approachable. I wanted to make it about my mom. My mom was that. My mom was simple. My mom was elegant. My mom was debonair. My mom was tough. My mom was rigid. And I say all these things with, there's many different elements of, of design in our room. There's there's smooth walls. There's 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 natural uh, mosaic tile floors. There's pockmarked plaster. And these were just a gift from the building. We were, as we were doing our demo, you know, people would pay tons of things to make that space look like that. But you couldn't get that shade of ash of the previous fire that was in that building in that brick. You couldn't get that level of plaster that was there. And and the building does have a natural uh, elegance unto itself. And and that was the approach. People say, what what does grace and proper mean? Where'd you come up with that name? And and, and it's the air of this room. It's we want it to be graceful, we want it to be proper. We wanted to be masculine and we wanted to be feminine. We wanted to have a graceful cocktail, a proper pint. We wanted to encompass what it feels like just to go to a neighborhood corner spot um, that hits, that feels different, that is unique, that is stimulating, that is theater, and that's done with care. But most importantly, it has to be attainable. It is a it is a not highly expensive place to go. People can go in there with $10 and come in. That is value of when I grew up of loving and un treating everyone the same, right? So, you know, we, we have a responsibility of putting many people of different backgrounds, of different colors, different creeds in our room. Politics, leave them at the door. You are in a safe place. Come as you are. And, and everyone is loved. That is our been, that has been our complete approach to all of our restaurants. And the price point is important, right? You get having, Having a college kid come in with a five bucks in his hands or having the guy who's been in a neighborhood who plays chess at Bartishano Park want to pop in and feel comfortable without having to spend a ton of money, we're, we're here for you. Uh, from your food uh, to somebody else's, uh, the last question of the day. Where do you go that's non-Hawthorne restaurant group related? Where do you go for your quintessential meal in Philadelphia. So Steakhouse, I'm a big fan of Steak 48. I just think that they salt me properly. I enjoy it. Uh, not a big fan of creamed spinach, but boy, their creamed spinach is mighty tasty. Okay. So if I said, Chris, let's meet for dinner in Philly, it's going to be Steak 48. I would say it's Steak 48 uh, for sure. Um yeah, I think Good that pick. would be my uh, that would be my that would be my that would be my answer for sure. All right, thanks for that, and thank you for your time and for your insight and for your story. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us here on Philly Built. Well, that's our show for today, folks. If you're considering getting into the hospitality industry and need proper zoning. 
be sure to visit us at phillyzoning.com. We'll see you next time on the second season finale of Philly Built.